you're going to follow with your Bibles, please open up to Revelation chapter 21. I will read chapter 21 and chapter 22, the first five verses in their entirety. As we continue to speak on heaven, this will be our third sermon in a series of sermons on heaven. Let's follow along. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be any more mourning, nor crying, nor pain, any more for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write down, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable... As for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the twelve gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, twelve stadia. Its length with the, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built as jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
And a city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And it lights, and its lamp is the lamp. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut there, shut by day, for there will be no more night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And the night will be no more. They will need no light, nor lamp, or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you to bless the preaching of your word today, Lord God. Give us understanding. Give us clarity, Father God. Let us enter into this magnificent divine word picture. This picture of paradise. A new heaven, a new earth. A new Jerusalem, a holy city, a bride prepared and adorned by God for her husband. Father God, give us the insights you want us to have so we too can overcome the, the trials and tribulations and the, uh, of our own day, Father God. That we too can look to a city whose builder and foundation is God. We thank you, Father God, that you've put eternity into our hearts. And we know that this world is not all there is, Father God, for this world is empty at the end of the day, Father God. It promises much, it offers as little, Father So, God, we ask you as you preach today, Father God, that you warm our hearts. Give us some kind of understanding into this great text of Scripture that we have before us today, Father God. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Needless to say, if you were to go home and prayerfully do and read your Bibles and read the text, even all the revelation, you would be kind of confused. What did you? We have a lot going on here in uh, apocalyptic literature that really just staggers the imagination. And that's what it's for, is to stagger the imagination and stir us up. Uh, but there's a lot going on here. But what is going on, we need to take a little bit of time to understand. We're coming to the climax, if not the climax, of human history. It's all over, it's all said, it's all done. God is finally with his people as he has promised, as he designed from the beginning. It's finally here. That heaven will not be an invisible dimension we've learned about over the last couple of weeks, uh, but it will be a renewed earth. Tangible. Terra firma. Our feet will be firmly planted. We will not be floating around without feet. We will have feet. We will have hands. We will have eyes. We will walk. We will talk, we will converse, I believe we shall eat, I believe our taste buds will be up and blooming, Uh, all the pleasantries of life will be there, Uh, they will be magnificent as we share them with God, or I should say God shares them with us, and we share them with one another. Like Joshua and Caleb, even though uh, it's hard to comprehend the beauty and the magnificence, uh, the magnificence of heaven, 
But like Joshua and Caleb before us, they tasted the fruit of the promised land, if we remember your text in Numbers 13. They tasted the fruit of the land. So we by faith see it from afar, and we also taste its fruit. As the writer of Hebrews says, we have tasted the heavenly gift and shared the Holy Spirit. We have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. We also saw who made up this place last week, the Bride of Christ, in all her radiant beauty. If we looked at the Bride of Christ through the scriptures and even our own life in our own local church, we could look like a real mess, can't we? But we recognized something last week, but it's the Bride of Christ prepared by God. And when you look at the Revelation, you get to see a picture of how God sees us when? Now. How God has always saw us. Don't think that God sees us perfect at the end. He sees us perfect in Christ right now. It's hard for us to fathom, but that is just the truth. We're co-heirs with Christ. He has seated us in heavenly places. We're adopted children of God. He sees no imperfection in us. Hard to believe. I see plenty, plenty in all you people. Very little in myself. No, I am daily reminded, as Charles Spurgeon, that no good thing dwells in me, as the Apostle Paul says so eloquently. But God sees us that way. We, we looked at that last week. Tonight I want to speak about some of the dynamics of heaven. I want to finish up on this chapter and speaking about heaven. And I realized I was going through the chapter and, and, and what the Bible says on heaven is a lot. But most is implied in our text tonight. Most is implied. There is more. But it would take, I just don't have the capacity to do that. And I figure we can always revisit it and, and take more looks at heaven. But I'm going to try to put it together tonight in this one uh, chapter and conceptualize heaven. Not so much go by verse by verse and stone and precious stone and gold and crystal and jasper by a little piece. It will be here forever trying to analyze this and it will be trying to see the beauty of a forest by looking down the ground and and looking at a leaf that has fallen down. And it's beauty, beautiful it is, but you'll, you'll miss the whole forest. So conceptually, I will speak about what the Bible says, about what this chapter says today, so we can see some of the magnificence of the reality of heaven and what's really going on here that is illustrated, it's illustrated uh, within the, the language of apocalyptic literature. Again, it's there to stagger the mind. It is meant to challenge our imagination. It's meant, apocalyptic literature is meant that way. And understand something about this. It's not just that. To the curious, it'll always mean nothing. It'll always be a curiosity. That's all it is. But to those who are pure in heart, they see God in there. They know there's a message from the Lord for them. And it warms their heart. So as we go through this apocalyptic literature, for those who are pure in heart and who love God, it will warm your heart when we understand the implications of what John is seeing here. And that's what I want to go through there. It might seem a mystery, but when we go through it, it, it it'll, it'll warm your heart and you'll see it already placed within your heart. Because heaven's placed in our heart. As we spoke about the last couple of weeks and, and John already prayed, please understand, what we're reading here is taking place every day in the life of a believer. 
And when you take a group of believers out of the world, a group of sinners saved by grace, filled with God's spirit, covered in his blood, being taught by his word, understand something. Everything that's taken place in Revelation chapter 1, 21, in the first five verses of chapter 22 is taking place right now. Everything. It's all here. I'll touch upon a couple of things in application at the end. <coughs> there are same main points that are being made here that I want to stay with today. And that we need to recognize. That we have this picture of this new heaven and this new earth. And the major play is here, and understand something about this, is God the Father and Jesus the Son, the Lamb. And we'll we'll apply to that as we go along. It's Jehovah and the Lamb, His Son. Those are the major plays that's going on over here. And what we got a picture of is this new earth, terra firma, it's real, it's tangible, you can touch, you can see it, you can hear it, you can smell it, all the senses are engaged. And in this city, on this new earth, there is a city. And it doesn't have high walls. The city would be 1,200 miles high, square, wide, and deep by these measurements. It's it's meant to give us a picture of redeemed people. In this cubicle, which is a picture of the Holy of Holies. So we have the new earth, we have a city of redeemed people, and guess who's in the city of redeemed people? Who's on the throne? It's a picture of the Holy of Holies. It's a picture of the deepest intimacy you can have. That God originated in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He forfeited. Christ reinstated it. And this is a picture of what it's going to finally look like. And every time we get together for church, this is what's going on. All our focus, all our worship from what Todd did, all our prayers, all our exhortations, the preaching, especially the preaching, along with the worship, should all point to who? Jesus. Christ. I should not stand up here and warm your hearts with little stories about myself. Stories okay once in a while. I shouldn't give you a little commentary on what's going on in the newspaper or the movie I saw last night. Those things can only apply when they point to the sermon, which points to who? Always. Always. It has to point to Christ. The major plays, like I said, are Jehovah and his son, the Lamb. Both of them sit on a throne in the city. And from that city, from that throne, flows eternal life, which is represented as the tree of life and the river of life, which is for the healing of the nations. The tree of life, especially uh, the the river of the water of life, has always been a metaphor in Scripture, as Pastor John has been going through uh, uh, the Gospel of John, has always been a metaphor of salvation. It speaks to the soul's wilderness. It's it's pilgrim in in this moral wilderness we live in. And that the water of life is a picture of eternal life, of salvation. And what this is, is healing of the nations. And we'll get into what the healing of the nation is later. There is no temple in this city... Because God and the Lamb are its temple. No need for a temple. Or plainly put, the temple that was used to be represent God with his people in the Old Testament. 
and the temple that represented God and Jesus Christ in the New Testament and the local church is not needed anymore because the old and former things have passed away. To be sure, Christ will always be the God-man, the Lamb. He'll never cease to be the man Christ Jesus, the mediator, the Savior. He'll always be the way he was in his resurrected body for all eternity. He who sits on the throne will always be, you'll see the color of his eyes, you'll see the size of his hands. He'll probably be somewhere around 5'6", five, 5'7", five, 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 uh, some kind of uh, uh, maybe Palestinian complexion. This is who he is, he'll always be that way. He won't change in stature, why all? He won't be 20 foot high. I might look down a little bit to Christ and say, I love you, Lord. I love you. I might stand a little bit taller than that. He'll never change. The old things have passed away. He says, now the dwelling place of God is with man. With man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be them with them as their God. This is the whole Bible. It's summed up in that one verse of Scripture. I will be with them. There will be nothing to separate me from my people. Never again will there need to be an atonement. Never again will they live by faith. Never again will they need to confess. Never again will I need to wash their feet. Never again, never again, never again. There will never ever be anything before me and my people. Me and my people will be one forever. This is the climax of the whole Bible and redemptive history. Simply put, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. To behold his glory and his beauty. What intimacy. This was seen once in all of scripture. The transfiguration. When Christ's face shone with all the glory of heaven. And they saw it. They didn't see the glorified, resurrected Christ. They saw the deity of Christ. They saw his deity. They saw his divine nature. I can't figure it out. I can't comprehend it. I'm not going to try to. But I tell you one thing. It warms my heart. It warms my heart. This is what they're beholding face to face. This is what God has been working towards, this face-to-face confrontation with his people. God has always desired a people for himself, to love them and to enjoy them, to bless them, and to share himself with them in all his triune beauty and complexity, something that's missed within the Trinity, and within our own thinking. Total, perfect unity and diversity and divine complexity. I can't figure it out, but it's there. And somehow, for God to dwell with us as a society of people, to reflect His glory, the glory in our inner character, as Paul says in Ephesians, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This is what God has always desired. It's his original design. 
It's also a reflect in their interpersonal relationships. Understand something. Creation has always been about people. Always. It's always been about people. We are so saturated with this radical individualistic life we live here in America. We're so fractured from society. Our, our families are fractured. Churches are fractured. Pastors and associate pastors are fractured. People are fractured. Loved ones are fractured. Husbands and wives are fractured. Children and their siblings are fractured. All these fractured relationships. We can't even comprehend. Please understand this. I don't want you to miss the implications of what it means about this, this, this city with these high walls that, that are built with these precious stones. It talks about society at its best. It's about society. It is about people. Something that staggers the brain and the imagination. Because we still live in the flesh. We still live in a fallen world. It is extremely hard to live in this sense of this total committed unity and harmony and caring and concern for one another. It's said. But that's the implication here. That's what God has always desired. He doesn't desire to be my God. And then you have your God over here. As I said last week, God doesn't, heaven's not the, 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 the Irish section and, the, and then the Spanish section and then and the evangelical section and, 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 and the Lutheran section and you know, the, the, the 1500 section and the 21st century, century contemporary section. It, it, there's no sections. It's, it's not compartmentalized like that. But you will see the beauty in the plan of redemption as we go along. These interpersonal relationships that are reflected in here, that's what this city is. It's about people. You think God's into buildings? You think Jesus Christ came to shed his blood for gates of pearl? He did it for humanity. It's about humanity. It's always about people. Wherever God is, his concern and love for people are there. It's never separated, ever. A sharing and caring people, enjoying the diversity of both. Enjoying the glory of each other as created in God's image. And the unique character of both is represented in heaven. Understand something. Uh, no two people are the same. And in heaven, in this great pearly city we just read about, which is it's about people, about redeemed sinners, about being created into the image of God perfectly again. Understand something. You will always be who you are. I'll always be who I am. There's no two people are saying we're not going to all look alike. It's not going to be like that. We will look different. We will look the way we do. There'll be differences. We'll be in glorified bodies, but we will be different. It's not going to be uniformity where everybody's dressed the same. It's sort of like the Jehovah Witnesses. You know when they're walking down the block. You can, you, you can recognize the Jehovah Witnesses from a mile away. They got their jacket. They all got their pad book. And, you know, it's like, but that's uniformity. Or I should say, that's conformity. It's, it's the same mold. Same matrix. But you and I, we keep our distinct character that's unique to each and every one of us. But yet, on the inside, we're fully devoted to the Lord, perfectly. All of us, the same. This is the beauty of salvation. 
It's the beauty of redemption. We should rejoice in it now. We should see the uniqueness that we all contribute. This is heaven at its best. That's what's being represented in this chapter. You might not see it, but God's into people. It's represented by the precious stones, and not just that, but the glory of the nations. What's the glories of the What are we going to offer to God? What can I offer to God? Oh, look what I made. It's made with gold and silver and precious. God could care less. But when the glory of the nations come in and say, Lord, I thank you for my salvation. I love you, God. I thank you for transforming my wicked heart. The glory of the nations are sinners redeemed by Christ with all humility and the fruit of the Spirit that come before God, that come before each other. They bow down to God. They love God. They love one another. No malice, no animosity, no anger, no slander, nothing like that going on. Just perfect and pure harmony. This is the glory of the nations. In all its diversity, in complete unity and harmony, one heart, one mind, one pure devotion of worship to God. As Paul says elsewhere in Timothy, call upon the Lord with those who worship God from a pure heart. All our hearts will be overwhelmed with the purity of heavenly worship. Both redeemed sinners and angelic beings. The throne in the middle of the city, which also is the fulfillment of the Holy of Holies, which I just spoke about. The city, if you put the measurements together, would be 1,200 miles square. Are we supposed to picture a 1,200 mile high city? Of course not. It's a picture of a perfect cube by the perfect number 12 and its variables. And what we have going on here is the fulfillment of the most holy place where God dwells. You are the temple. You are the holy place. And in the back room where no one can go but the high priest and then only once a year after making atonement for his own sin and atonement for the sins of the people was allowed to go into the most holy place and take the blood and put it on top of the mercy seat and make atonement for the people. And on top of the mercy seat was the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. And only in that place and that place alone. And what this city is, it's a representation of that glory of God. It's a perfect cube. It's showing that God's original design was always to be face to face with people. As we read in the 22nd chapter. It's always been designed. He didn't speak to Adam and Eve from a distance saying, Adam, can you hear me? Who is it, Jehovah? After he sinned, he said. It was a face-to-face relationship. There's no faith. Adam Adam didn't have to exercise faith. He lived in sight and relationship with God. After he sinned, he had to live by faith. This is a face-to-face relationship. This is the way God always wanted. There's a, a missing element in heaven. I ask you to speak or read Isaiah 65. We read too much. I'm not going to read that. 
But the hidden element for many Christians that don't realize that God enjoys us. He enjoys us. Do you know God longs for heaven more than you and I do? That every moment, from the moment of the fall, God has desired what's taken place in Revelation chapter 21. That's always been his heart. Every action he's ever done since the moment he came into the garden to correct Adam and Eve was for this end. This is all a means to the end we just read. That God can be with his people and enjoy them. God enjoys us. He loves us. And one of the greatest uh, characteristics of love is enjoying a person. God enjoys us. You might find that hard to believe. But he does. There's something unique about all of us. God speaks to each and every one of us in in our language. He knows how I'm made. He knows how you're made. He knows what weighs you down. He knows what brings you joy. He knows what brings you peace. He knows what troubles you. He knows how to speak your language better than anybody. He knows how to comfort my wife's heart better than I could ever. He knows how to comfort me. Are you with me? He he knows our language. God enjoys us. And he doesn't want hindered relationships. We're all in a relationship with God. I know that. You know that. But I don't know about you, but I'm distracted all the time. This world makes me distracted. My own failings and weaknesses and temptations are distractions. God knows that. God desires to have undistracted relationship with us. And that's where we're going. All the redeemed from the Old Testament and the new are represented by the 12, the 12 tribes on the, uh, on the foundations and the 12 apostles on the gates. I mean, that's a picture of just all the redeemed from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Simply put, that's all it is. Its walls go to show us that there is peace and safety. Peace and safety in the hearts of God people. Understand something from the beginning of the fall. From the beginning. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned. Fear has been part of the human experience. Every human being. Fear, anxiety on some spectrum has always been part of the human experience. Always. And the thought of living in an eternal existence without any fear, without any anxiety, is beyond our comprehension. But that's the safety that's being portrayed here in chapter 21. This is what man needs most. Man needs to know that peace that transcends all understanding. Man needs to know that he can be in perfect harmony with all humanity. This is represented in here. People need to know that they can be face to face, that God enjoys their company. Man is never without some kind of fear or some kind of anxiety. But God will personally wipe away every tear. 
as our text says. Because death and all the pain that comes with it will be no more, for the old things have passed away. Pain of body, pain of mind, pain of emotion, pain of spirit will dis- not just dissipate, it will be annihilated, eradicated, totally gone from the redeemed human's experience. And the pain of the presence of sin represented in all those who do the detestable things will be no more, for they will suffer their own fate in the second death, the lake of fire. There's something about heaven that's represented here, about the lake of fire, that most people miss. It has to do with heaven. It's a sense of the knowledge that divine justice has been served, and God, God the Son, and God's people have all been vindicated. As he says in Revelation chapter 6, 9 and 10, And when he opened the seal, that was the Lamb, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That God has triumphed over evil and all evil will be a satisfying component of heaven in the hearts of both angels and saints. Justice will be served. God will be vindicated. His son will be vindicated. This church will be vindicated. Uh, The word of God will be vindicated. And such a part of heaven this will be. Listen to chapter 19, Revelation. Listen to what it says. It's a reason to cry hallelujah. After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. That's us crying out hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And has avenged the blood of her servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke of her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God. And were seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. The reality that God has vindicated his own name, his own son, and his own people will be a great component in heaven. And then the bride, as mentioned before, made up of all the nations, will bring their glory. And what is this glory? Well, it is twofold. First, it shows that even great men of the earth the kings of the earth shall bring in their glory. It shows that even the great men of the earth from all generations who God has saved will bow down in the worship of God. Might not sound like much, but there's something wonderful in watching powerful people in the eyes of the world praising Christ, isn't it? It's something wonderful. The three wise men came and paid homage to the baby Christ. There's something magnificent. It's a foreshadowing of what we're reading here. That the powerful and the kings of the earth will come and bow down. People of position, power and wealth, influence, as the world standards go, who themselves have not been contaminated 
by its allure, but instead walking in humility and virtue and the fruit of the Spirit. What a picture of greatness. There's something wonderful when I see men of influence, and I've met them, who walk in a spirit of humility. And they love people because you're thinking the worst. And you say, there's, there's a beauty to it. I met this one gentleman, professional football player. Everything the world had. Gave it all up to follow Christ. When I hear him talk, it just warms my heart. He gave up everything, fame, fortune, and prestige, to follow Christ and do his work. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. The second... This is of all the nations, the glory of all the nations. And I've spoken about already, this is ethnicity and culture at its best. This is heaven. A multitude of people from every tribe, nation, tongue, coming together in the worship of God. Every ethnicity, every culture, all the differences. For thousands of years and generations will be there. And they'll all be holding on to their original differences and their original ethnicity and cultures. Heaven will be greatly diversified. This is one of the magnificent beauties of heaven. And this is why the church is a microcosm of it. It's a microcosm. We should never forget that. Heaven has great diversity. In all the glory of the nations, it speaks about the contributions that all nations have made, even in this earth, even in this sinful, contaminated world we live in, for all these generations. All their contributions in worship, all the redeemed from every culture, all that was good to men's soul will be represented in heaven. Listen, music will be in heaven, poetry will be in heaven, art will be in heaven, uh, uh, engineering, architecture, mathematics, science, education, every good thing on this earth that has benefited the soul of men will be represented in heaven. I can't comprehend it, but it will. It will. The glory of the nations. All the different cultures. As I said, all our faculties will be engaged along with all our senses. And his servants will worship him. As 22.3 says, and his servants will worship him. These words indicate industry. These words originally will apply to Old Testament priests, as they worked in the temple, they were his servants who worked and worshipped God. It matters two thoughts of working and worshipping God throughout the day, throughout their labors. It's priestly language. Adam and Eve were the first to be called to this work, to worship and marriage in the garden, when they were called to keep the garden and till the garden and grow the garden. That's all priestly language. And aren't we called to be a kingdom of priests? But even Paul talks about it now in Colossians 3.17. He says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. In verse 23, he says, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, and not for men. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, even on this earth. Even on this fallen earth, that's not a new earth, we're called to do everything we do to the glory of God. Whether in word, work, or deed, everything we do should be an act of worship towards God. 
Paul sums it up succinctly when he says, become living sacrifices. What we see here is a perfect restoration of God. Redemption is finished. Even the Alpha and Omega says, it is done. It is done. There's nothing more to be done. I'm with my people. It's all God wants. It's all God ever wanted. And people say, well, you know, if God's omnipotent, and God's omniscient, and God knows all things, then why? And then everybody has their personal why. And I tell them, you want the answer? You're going to have to sit down with me for a couple hours, and I'll tell you. It starts in the garden and ends in the garden. And i got to give you everything in between. If you're looking for some short answer why the, the magnificent, omnipotent, omniscient God who knows all things, sees all things, can do all things, allowed this all to happen, let me take you to Revelation 21, and I'll show you dwelling with his redeemed people. And if you don't like the answer, there's nothing I can do. It's the only answer God gives us. It's done. God has restored harmony to a world by keeping all the unique diversity. Don't miss it. Only God can bring total harmony and unity out of diversity. Only God can. You remain you. I remain me. You want to be chubby? You can be chubby. You want to be thin? You can be thin. You want to die your hair? You can die your hair. Do whatever you want. It's yours. Let's love each other in our unique differences. Amen? Amen. That's what God's teaching us. All the affections of the human heart are elevated to a place of perfection. Spontaneous and voluntary praise to God, adoration to God, and love for our fellow people. That's what government's always trying to do. Government is always trying to bring some kind of equality. They just don't know how to enjoy diversity. In heaven there will be rich. In heaven there will be poor. In a sense is that that's what they were here. But as the scriptures teach us, he who had too much had none left over. And he who had too little was never hungry. Why? Because he had too much gladly out of the overflow of his heart gave to him who had nothing. And him who had nothing didn't have to worry about it because God was working on the heart of him who had much. Didn't have to worry about it. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. I don't have to give regulations in the church. The church should be a generous people. You shouldn't have to and try to shake people down for money. You should be giving your money to God. Give it the money. That's all. Pastor doesn't say nothing. And from there it trickles down to the people who need it the most. It's the way it works. Also, not last, and we can't forget about this. This is important. The Lamb of God will be there. He'll be on the throne, and all the universe will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. All will know. Please understand this. He'll be the divine redeemer. That's why we see him as the Lamb. We see him as the Lamb at the end of the book. In some way, we will always be aware of our adoption of God because of the blood of Christ. We will always be aware that we were saved. 
from sin and wrath. It's hard to reconcile what will be in such a perfect place outside the presence of sin, the power of sin, and the curse of sin. We'll be outside that. It's nowhere to be found, but we'll have the gratitude that we're forgiven sins. It'll be perfect. It'll always be there. The implication is clear. Jesus Christ will always be praised, not as God, but as the Redeemer of His people. The God-man, the Lamb of God. But in this place there will be no regret, no remorse. Because God has already wiped away every tear. only thing now is liberated gratitude. How many people are gratitude, grateful to the Lord? How many people are? But it's not liberated yet. We still live in weakness. We still live with the potential of sin. We still live in uh, conflicting desires, don't we? So it's, it's not liberated yet. But one day it will be totally liberated. And it will be ours, totally free from the power, presence, and curse of sin. How awesome is this a picture of heaven on the new earth? Does not the heart of the believer just shout hallelujah? Doesn't it warm your heart to know that this is so? Doesn't the Holy Spirit bear witness to us that this is what's going on? Though we can't comprehend it, we know it's true. We know our citizenship is not of this earth, it's in heaven. And I close with this application, as I said last week. All these elements are taking place in seed form now on earth, in the Christian church. We see it all. Let's see the beauty in diversity. Let us see the uniqueness in each and every one of us. Let's recognize that God is working in each and every one of us. And as we spoke about it last week, it's easy to see negative stuff. But can you train your mind, can you train your eyes to recognize first and foremost the genuine work of grace in another believer's life? If you can do that, you can live in harmony with anybody. To see the genuine work of grace in someone else's life. Let's, let's do that. Let's do that to the honor of God. Let's bring our many diversities into the Christian unity for the glory of God. That through service, service, service with our gifts and talents, service with our gifts and talents, slash worship. Because service is worship in the kingdom of God. Let's bring our gifts and talents in, in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for every good and perfect gift. We thank you for this picture of heaven, Father God, that just boggles the brain, Father God, but overwhelms the heart, Lord God. Though we can't see it being true, we know it is, Father God. And I'd rather know truth than go by my feelings, Father God. So we thank you, Lord God, that you set before us a magnificent picture of the Alpha and Omega sitting on the throne with the Lamb on the throne. All the nations bringing their glory, saying it is done, it is done, it is done. Now God finally dwells with his people like he always wanted to, and his people dwell with him. And they will see him face to face.